through owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. Radio, radio this is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis That's and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to yeah. 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. Up next, Bo Spiram and Celeste Little with Let's Talk, a look at the Melbourne rallies that took place during COVID. Shout out to everybody from around the continent that is taking our program via the National Indigenous Radio Service knows. And as always, it is great to have your company. Recently in the media, yeah, and, and I think it's an important topic to, to continue to talk about uh, the rallies and protests that are happening in Melbourne we spoke to Aboriginal activists and organiser and Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance member Mariki Onus in regards to the rallies down uh, in Melbourne on the CBD. This morning I'm very, very thankful to have a very, very experienced union member on the program with me who was a writer and an activist as well. And I'll just bring them in. Thanks for joining us, Les. Um, how are you going? Yeah, not too bad, Brad. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Before we go any further, you mob in your country, please. Yeah, I'm an Arunda woman from Central Australia, whose traditional lands are, you know, pretty much in Bantua or Alice Springs and then east and southeast of there. I live on um, Wurundjeri country and I've lived here for about 30 years. So, yeah, I just want to acknowledge my, my mob and also the mob's lands who have never ceded their sovereignty and, yeah. Deadly. Uh, thanks, that, sis. Uh, so on the show today, I'd just love to sort of yarn about your involvement in unions and the understanding, uh, sorry, the importance of identifying uh, the red flags within movements that may have uh, detriment uh, to the broader uh, 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 community and society as well. But before we get there, um, how long have you been involved uh, uh, as a union uh, uh, member uh, and, and you know, uh, a very proud unionist? Um, I have been working as a union organiser now for over 10 years. So I've been National Indigenous Organiser for the NTU for that long. I'm also... Um, a member of the ASU, so the Australian Services Union and the MNAA, so that, you know, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, because I'm a writer and I've been a member of both of those, I think, for, well, ASU for 10 years. Yeah, the other one for about eight and was an NTU member and an activist prior to me starting to work in the movement for a long time too. So, 
So nearly two decades all up I've been active in the movement. Mm. And, you know, when I recently spoke to Mariki as well, we we chatted and I alluded to previous interviews that uh, we've done here on Let's Talk in regards to the solidarity uh, and sort of the intersection between unions uh, and the Aboriginal rights movement, which goes back, you know, uh, to the early 1930s, uh, 1920s, um, you know, with their solidarity with uh, walk-offs to, you know, campaigning against the 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 massacres against uh, Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory to, mm-hmm. you know, just um, outright supporting uh, the rights for Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander people to be, and, 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 and also South Sea Islander mob, to be paid a fair wage as well. The, the history goes long. Currently, you know, with the situation that is happening in, in particular, I guess, down in Melbourne, uh, we see, um, well, I guess what we see from the outside you know, uh, you know, the everyday person who doesn't necessarily understand uh, the internal politics or how to identify certain red flags. You know, on TV and on social media, what we're seeing and what we're told is that, you know, there's a, a dispute between unions or union members. For somebody in Melbourne and sort of, you know, a part of sort of the union movement, could you help us sort of identify uh, what has been going on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's been a number of things. The dispute that we're seeing in the protest has specifically centred around the CFMEU, so construction, forestry, mining, um, yeah, that union. And what started as a really sort of valid, or you could argue valid, protest on Friday, which was that... The construction workers have been able to continue working during during COVID lockdowns, unlike a lot of other people in Melbourne. So they they negotiated pretty quickly to um, with the Master Builders Association down here to ensure that that building projects could go on, that that they would reduce capacity, that they would take measures to make make construction COVID safe, and so on and so forth. During this last lockdown, the Delta variant, we've seen about 13, I think it's 13% of COVID cases come out of construction. So the Chief Health Officer um, down here in Melbourne did two things. One was that he he shut down the tea rooms that were on site. So, so, you know, people didn't have a place to warm up food or grab a cuppa or something during a break. And they also legislated um, or said that in their roadmap that vaccinations would be mandatory for people working in construction. So um, on Friday, we had a pretty valid protest, which was that people on the site occupied the roads around the sites that they, um, they were working, set up tables and had lunch there because they didn't have access to a place where they could go and relax on the building sites anymore. And they wanted to highlight that this was a problem. Beyond that, though, the the continuing process that we've seen has been a mashup between, you know, right-wing actors and anti-vaccination actors and also union members who don't support mandatory vaccines essentially working together 
to create a series of ongoing protests on the street. And I think that, you know, at, at the core of all this, Bruz, is the fact that that what unions are are a collective of workers. So these are all people who, who are paid wages, who don't own the means of production. They're not the big, you know, master builders or anything. And that does the same for any other industry. Yeah, it's a collective of workers. And within that collective of workers, that's their main identity that binds them together. They're all just earning a wage. They're not, they're not the ones who are paying the wage. So you do get all types who are union members. And building, the building industry has a reasonably high membership, um, high-density membership. So within that, there are, you know, there are a lot of good people, but there are also a lot of not so good people who um, do pay union membership because they want access to closed sites so they can get work. Or yeah, um, they they you know they they do want the protection that a union has to offer. Um, so so there's been a bit of a crossover between anti-vax organisers and far-right um, actors and people who work on build, building sites. And that has played out now to the point of where we saw the CFMEU building essentially smashed in at the, um, at the front because people didn't agree with what their, um, what their secretary, the state secretary, was saying. And, yeah, it was, it was a pretty revolting display of... Um, violence. Mm, no, it was uh, when you see it all uh, playing out, you know, uh, bottles and other sort of you know, objects, you know, just being thrown and people, you know, kicking and then end up punching on uh, with each other as well. You you highlighted quite a, a few interesting points as well and mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that Mariki sort of uh, mentioned when I uh, chatted with, with her as well is that um, for quite some time now, the far-right movement, in particular in Melbourne, um, or I guess as of recent, you know, uh, hasn't been as vocal, but over the last uh, few years, they have been very active, you know, uh, in trying to organise, maybe grow capacity as well. Um, you know, when there is sort of some, I don't know what you call like distrust or... When things are up in the air and people looking for answers, you know, do you, do, do you feel as if this is this always seems to be like the time for these far right groups to sort of step in and and try and recruit members and try and sort of emphasise with them, you know, one for possibly losing their jobs and all the worries that comes mm-hmm. with that, and and then trying to sort of you know bring them um, to to their perspective on on how they're seeing things as well. Do you, do you feel as if that's what's happening down there? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that um, you know Melbourne, well Victoria at large, has a reputation for being quite a progressive part of the country. But we also can't escape the fact that a lot of these far right groups and movements have come out of Melbourne, and they have been active and. There was a pretty good Channel 9, I'm trying to remember, sorry, 60 Minutes investigation into some of these groups and who some of the key figures are down in Melbourne. But 
you know, it's been festering along for a number of years. You know, we've had to we've had to fight fascists down here, um, actual fascists down here um, on a number of occasions. And within a situation like COVID, and particularly in Melbourne, where you know nobody, nowhere else in the country has been locked down as much as us. So we've passed 240 days of lockdown, I think now. So a lot of people are lost their jobs. There's a lot of people who are really distressed. The, the call on mental health services has gone through the roof. Yeah, so people have been looking for answers and, and wanting to know whether this is all worthwhile or what and have been going down. You know, I, I guess there's a, there's, there's a problem. Um, perhaps the government or all groups like unions need to be better at educating members or whatever else, but people have been going down these sort of rabbit holes that um, that right-wingers used to recruit, sorry, the far-right used to recruit and to bring people on, um, come out. One of the core organisers of, of these ongoing marches hasn't even been a construction worker. It's been a been an IT worker who's really active within an anti-vax telegram channel that a lot of these people have been accessing and getting information from. And it, it has been exploitable because I don't think governments working with community groups such as unions or, or faith groups or ethnic groups or whichever else have done enough to ensure that this sort of misinformation doesn't run right through a group of people who are feeling really disenfranchised and a bit hopeless right now. Mm. Shouldn't the red flag for everybody be that any rally or protest that uses the word freedom, you know, shouldn't that be a red flag for a, a fascist or a right-wing uh, protest? You know, like we, you know, we, we never see those things, you know, um, well, like we're very specific to the issues and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and to what we're talking about as well. And I was having a laugh on, on social media last night, at, uh, yarning to somebody, you know, about that as well. Uh, just really quickly, if you are tuning into the program, my guest is Celeste Little, Aboriginal unionist, feminist, writer, Activist, all the above, all the good, all the great things, you know, that she is. Uh, and when we're having a chat about uh, these recent uh, violent protests happening throughout uh, Victoria, uh, so, uh, uh, mainly Melbourne in the CBD and sort of surrounding areas. Before that, we saw, you know, just sort of everyday people uh, attending these anti-lockdown protests uh, as well um, and, and you just sort of mentioned sort of this the, the, the sharing of this misinformation um, mm. um, we all have people within sort of our community and our family who you know I, I, I have personally you know who share you know half this content as well and from these creators these content creators who have actively protested and and created content against our events as blackfellas, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the main ones down in, in Victoria who was sort of, uh, I think they've sort of changed uh, their bio to say they're a, a human rights journalist or something, but, you know, have actively created content against Invasion Day and, and saying that uh, Aboriginal deaths in custody are fake 
and, and, and you know, average people die of natural causes and, and not from police or prison um, negligence. You know, you know, some of the people you know are creating this content who who mob share have have really created content that's very disgusting and, and a very uh, triggering and traumatizing for uh, many of our people with inside uh, our communities throughout the country. Yeah. How, how do we sort of combat all this stuff as blackfellas? You know, one thing is, I guess, would be to turn off social media. For some people, it's easy. For others, that's sort of their their access to news, to family. That's their sort of connection mm. to sort of um, other world as well. So as blackfellas, you know, how can we not be sort of bombarded with all of this information, misinformation, um, all these conspiracy theories? It, it's rough. And, yeah, turning off social media might be one way, but I guess down here in Melbourne, when people have been locked down for so long, social media has been, um, you know... How, it's survival. Yeah, it's survival, exactly. It's, you know, how we keep connected and how we talk to each other in these in these sort of times when we're all separated. Just last night, I was arguing with some of my my um, family and, you know, other Arundel mob back home about the sort of misinformation that they were spreading. And I don't think they listened to a single thing that I had to say. But it struck me that, you know, not a single one of them has also had the experience that I have where we know that mobs are incredibly vulnerable to it. We're seeing it play out in um, Wilcania, like that segment from the point that showed the situation in Wilcania and how dire it is and how that virus was just ripping through that community, which should have had no support whatsoever from the government. We can see those sorts of things playing out, but um, I don't think that people from my homeland have much of a perspective of what it's been like to live under constant lockdown and know that there's, you know, we're only one person away from them going into work crook to have another outbreak in nursing homes and kill off another bunch of elders. Or, or you know, a sick nurse. And there's the anti-vax movement isn't just permeating members of the union who are who are um, construction workers and all that. Like every single union right now is grappling with members who are anti-vaccination from from you know people in higher education, some of the most educated people in the country, which I work with, to to actual nurses. There's anti-vax nurses out there. There's anti-vax Social workers, it's something that really does take hold. And, you know, we we have to... I, I think that we can point out that mob who are sharing this information are sharing information from groups that we need to be questioning. They are far right, most more often than not. They don't care about our community health. It's more about sticking it to the government, but, but at what cost? And the reality of the situation is, if vaccinations um, were so were so deadly, were so problematic, everything else, then the first places they would have rolled them out would have been in Indigenous communities. Because, you know, I, I hate to be cynical, but um, governments don't really want black fellas around. They, 
you know, they've done the 250 years, they've done everything they can to not make us survive. So, mm. and, and we've had to keep fighting that entire time. So, and so if something was so poison, they'd be administering it to us first. Definitely, you know, and, and obviously that's where we can see the mistrust you know coming from from our mob outside of sort of the misinformation the you know the anti-vax stuff and 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 all this other stuff creeping into our communities now because you know like wait a minute you know we know what it's like to be a part of a system that has neglected us for so long so all of a sudden we can see now um you know and i guess you know we've, we've always seen that as well and yeah it's 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 scary you know because i've had to have many conversations and you know, I've got to the point where, you know, if, if that's what family members want to, you know, sort of go down, then I'm like, oh, right, yeah, well, I'm sick of talking to you about that. But then once they started sharing the content from these content creators who have actively, as I mentioned before, worked against sort of uh, the many issues that our mob fight against in various different parts of this country, like, you know, I was like, well, I was like, no, I can't sort of sit back now and, you know, uh, try and, and do some other stuff as well. So. Mm. Yeah, it's it's definitely tricky and like running into a to a brick wall in, in in most cases as well. I guess in this sort of part of the show as well, Celeste, you, you mentioned some great points in regards to you know for, for for from a unionist perspective in terms of understanding and uh, educating union members uh, on sort of various different issues and you know maybe. Uh, are doing more to sort of support unions under this sort of current sort of situation that we're at, you know, uh, and the foreseeable future uh, with this pandemic. Um, You know, and and you sort of mentioned, you know, uh, how it's not as easy for for, for our community just to necessarily turn off social media because it is a lifeline, especially for communities that have been in, in lockdown, like, you know, in Victoria, and 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 Sydney and various parts of New South Wales as well. It's we look at what's happening now, and you know we we never know when it's going to end because you know we, we continue to sort of communities continue to get, get go into lockdown. Um, yeah. Well, other than uh, these rallies, there was an earthquake. Um, did that seem to have any effect on any of these right wing uh, protests? Well, they were definitely smaller yesterday. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, and I think that um, they they have sort of edged off. But more, what I'd say has been an effect. Um, you know, we've seen we've seen the anti-lockdown and anti-vax um, rallies grow in Melbourne over several months. I can't help but think that what has seen a number of them shrink is that is people who are actually unionist within that movement, you know, even if they still retain anti-vax or anti-lockdown views, have kind of seen that they have been a bit hijacked and that um, this isn't a safe space for them. You know, there was the Westgate Bridge after people had walked over that. It was plastered with, you know, white Australia stickers. People have had to remove those things um, since that. So, so you know, that kind of discounts any um, any worker of colour who's a union member feeling particularly safe within those movements. Um, Definitely. And, and sadly, we're seeing lots of them fellas, 
you know, yeah. within these rallies. And as you mentioned before, they're you know they're a huge part of um, the unions and and sort of these industries, and you know they're having to sort of wear the full brunt of you know what some of these far right organisations and groups, you know, I'm, I'm sure are yelling at in Australia. Like we saw um, Sister Girl Viv's. Uh, mm-hmm. videos confronting some of these mob and you know it's hard to watch because you, know, you can hear in the background these mob you know uh being racist towards sis and uh she's just sort of walking in the middle and trying to get an understanding on on what these people are are doing and so you can just imagine on the other foot people who are really sick of not working or not knowing if they're going to go back to work and you know not mm. knowing if they're going to pay rent and you know they they may legitimately want to protest to have you know better working rights and conditions and know that they're going to have work and then all of a sudden these other people who come in very clean high vis look like it's just mm-hmm. been born from the shop uh sorry brought from the shops you know not not no uh, uh, not a not a scratch or a or, or a blemish on on this high vis uh, uniform that they're wearing, but you know want to sort of control the narrative. Uh, yeah. As well. Yeah, completely, completely. And I think and is that, that a thing as know, well? Like all the all, all the new clean high vis uh, just being bought for the sake of the rally? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely a thing. It's been documented from the Telegram groups that have been used to organise some of these rallies. So people who were turning up to support, and I do support in quotation marks because it's more like, you know, hijack. You've got a group of organised people which are union members and they're being hijacked by a far-right movement. Yeah, they were they were asked to come along in high bids so that, you know, everyone looked like a worker, everyone looked like a collective. So they were asked to, to buy high-vis to blend in and pretend to be union members to sort of broadcast to the broader public of Australia and the world that this is, you know, union members. Well, not even union members, just tradies. Sorry, yeah, tradies, yeah. Of, yeah, tradies at large, so that they were blending in and everyone looked like they were part of a collective. So it's definitely happened. I think, though, that... As the rallies go on, um, those that are actual union members and are questioning the lockdowns and questioning the closing of tea rooms and whatever else kind of realise two things. One, that their movement is being hijacked and two, that, you know, workers of colour end up staying away in more and more numbers because, because we're being highly policed here in Victoria as well. You know, the policing powers have gone through the roof since COVID hit. And cops have the right to find. They've got assault weaponry out there that they're firing rubber bullets and capsicum spray grenades and all that sort of stuff at protesters. And, you know, guess who they target first? They don't go after the white-looking people. Racist police go straight after the workers of colour. Um, you know, they're the ones who are mo- most likely to bear the brunt of any mm. police violence. So, yeah, I think that people, I think that the rallies are getting smaller because people are realising this isn't a safe space for them to air their concerns about lockdowns and about vaccinations, even if they believe those concerns are valid, which I obviously don't. But, you know, I think that people do need better education on everything here because we've been living under this for so long that people are really disheartened. 
Mm. Yeah, it's been it's been a while, and, you know, and like it's sort of the unforeseeable future at the moment with, um, mm. you know, job security. So I'm very thankful that you know, even during the pandemic last year, at the height of it, you know, uh, we can still work. You know, we can still actively come to the station. You know, each yeah. obviously individually, um, the, the, the building was shut down, and you know, you know, we, we could work through that. Came to work, then go home, and you know, sort of finish your day uh, back at home. You know, we're very thankful. Um, but obviously, there's many industries out there that aren't. And and I remember somebody mentioning that in regards to one of the Sydney rallies that recently happened was, you know. A lot of the, a lot of the people who attended, they were just sick of, you know, their communities being over policed, especially a lot of them mm-hmm. from uh, Western uh, uh, Sydney, as well. You know, uh, being over policed in, in communities that are predominantly people of colour. Yeah, um, working class people. Yeah, people. Yeah. Obviously, we've seen the the sad images of of Bondi and sort of. The, you know the eastern shore or a north shore sorry you know a very prominent uh areas where people are just sort of you know chilling having having a good old day you know swimming or, or you know going to get a coffee or whatever but we don't see or hear uh local sort of politicians and and that sort of come out and say hey you know we really need to start sent you know we need to amp up the the the, the police in this specific area as well so yeah it's it's, it's yeah yeah and you know with those policing patterns have been incredibly telling it's been working class communities and communities of colour in sydney they even had army on on the street down here in melbourne you know we've already looked through stuff like the um postcode lockdown and the, the shutting down of the housing commission towers which are full of you know sudanese immigrants and and people with no means. And, 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 yeah. and not to mention as well, you know, where you come from in the Northern Territory in 2007, mm. the military went in, you know, yeah. quarantined yeah. payments if if kids weren't going to school and if there was uh, sort of any interruptions to sort of the children's going to school or whatever, you know, mm. the, the, you know and, and, and that still carries on today. You know, the intervention hasn't been sort of uh, revoked and uh, the Racial Discrimination Act was sort of taken out for that to go in. Yeah, it, it, it's it's crazy, you know. Yeah, that's what sort of one of my examples when anybody says, oh, you know, they're bringing the military or, you know, the, the cops are coming in heavier and we all need to be angry and upset and, and outraged over what's happening. They're taking out mm-hmm. rights. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, there's really good prime examples throughout this country within the last 10 years or even lesser where we can give prime examples of the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, losing more and more in the, in the face of uh, the majority of people in this country who sadly don't seem to care. Mm. Yes. Uh, but Celeste, yeah. I'll let you go because I know you have a busy day, I'm sure. Um, but I do want to thank you, sis for coming on and having this yarn. It's a very important yarn to have as well. And as long as this continues, um, I'll definitely continue having these discussions because I think in some way there needs to be sort of some counterbalance in understanding, one, the people pushing these movements, two, Mm -hmm. understanding why everyday people would attend these thinking that they're legitimate, you know, union, rank and file 
uh, our rallies and protests and stuff like that as well. And I think we need to continue to sort of break down this conversation where there's all this misinformation and where there's, you know, infiltration via yeah. right-wing fascist groups. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people need the full information of what's going on so that they're better informed. It, yeah. Definitely. My guest, Celeste Little, proud Arundel woman, unionist, feminist, journalist, all the good things, all, all the deadly things uh, down there in Victoria joining us to have a another yarn about the rallies and the protests down in Victoria. If you've enjoyed the show this morning, you can catch the podcast on our website, 989fm.com.au, a little bit later on in the day. But as always, it's a pleasure. You've been listening to Let's Talk here on Murray Country, 989fm. Good morning. You're on 3CR Breakfast. My name's Jacob. And I'm Fung. It's a pleasure to have you on today. And that was a section from Let's Talk featuring Bo Spiram and Celeste Little. And they talked a bit about some misinformation happening in communities during the pandemic, the far right and the Melbourne rallies that recently took place during the COVID-19 lockdowns. And we've got a a great show coming up for you today. Yes, that's right. Um, At around quarter past eight, we're going to be speaking with Kristen Lee, who is the communications director for the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses. And given that it is racing season uh, and the Melbourne Cup is on tomorrow, Mm. we're going to be talking about the campaigns campaigns that they have to um, expose the ongoing mistreatment and exploitation of horses in the industry. So that should be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, definitely a very insightful and very important topic. So that'll be happening at about quarter past eight this morning. Um, so how how are we doing this morning, Fung, with, with everything that's happening in the world right now? Yeah, um, I think, you know, it's been a big week, things being open again in Melbourne. It's been quite tiring. <laughs> Some really nice moments, though. Um, but, yeah, um, just trying to, I guess, ease myself back into post-lockdown life. For sure. How about you? Yeah, no, no, I can definitely relate. I think um, it's it's such a weird feeling knowing that we have options now. I mean, we've been living in these, these tiny vacuums of our lives, which I think um, the repetitive routine has it was becoming somewhat comforting towards the end because it was like yeah. it's so predictable it's yeah so exactly what's happening and now it, now the world's opened up and i'm like oh my god there's there's so many things to do mm. and people to see um and i feel like i'm just sort of burning myself out trying to see everyone but so yeah i need need to remember that it's um important to slow down as well yeah i think that's a really good takeaway from from this past week yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to start us off with a song today. Fung, do you have anything cool that you've been listening to recently? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, there's this Belgian artist that I've been listening to on repeat, and I played one of her songs on Tuesday Breakfast last week. Um, I really like her because she sings in French, and I get to practice <laughs> My French um, comprehension. Her name's Angèle, and she just released a track called um, Bruxelles Je T'aime after 
her home city. But aside from that, um, not much really. What's the song that you're going to play for us today? Amazing. Well, I don't know if it's um, as exciting as a, a Belgian artist um, from French, speaking in French, sorry. Um, but I did discover this artist this morning. Her name's Molly Millington, um, and she's from the Central Coast. And, and she, her style is kind of a blend of, of indie with pop. Um, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So this Love one's that. called October um, by Molly Millington. Was it real? Were you ever here? We built our kingdom, then it disappeared. Left no den where you used to live, but I've still got that guitar that you used to play.
you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR. You're joined by Jacob. And Fung. And that was October by Molly Millington. And I think I need to retract my earlier statement that it wasn't as exciting as um, your Belgian slash French loved it. artist. I'm obsessed. Yeah, I loved it. I was That was so good and mm. just such um, raw local talent, I feel. And as someone who um, res- has uh, grown up near the central coast, which is where this artist is from. Very exciting stuff for me. <laughs> Represent. That's right. We're now going to go to a an interview that Marissa from uh, Doin Time uh, had with Auntie Ann Jones and Auntie Megan Krakow. Um And they spoke about um, JC's death. JC was a young mother who was fatally shot in the street on September 17th, 2019 in the Geraldton suburb of Kalu. The 29-year-old woman was taken into Geraldton Regional Hospital where she later died of her injury. A police officer was charged with her murder um, and her death triggered massive protests in, in Geraldton um, and across the state of WA. So Marissa spoke with Auntie Ann Jones who is JC's mother and Auntie Megan Cracker from the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project project about what happened with JC's death, the court case and the consequences for the police officer who shot her and the lack of support and accountability in this broken system. Um, there is a content warning for this um, audio, so if if you're going to find that hard to listen to, um, maybe you can tune back in in uh, roughly 30 minutes. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa, and the warning that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this story contains audio images of people who have died. The 15th of April 2021 marks 30 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which handed down its final report on April 15, 1991. The report made 339 recommendations, but very few have been implemented and there is very little change. Today's broadcast is a roll call in honour of all deaths in custody, but in particular, this show is dedicated to JC, as she is known for cultural reasons. And we'll be interviewing shortly Auntie Anne Jones, who is the mother of JC, and just a little bit about her before we go on to that. And, and of course, we'll be having Auntie Megan 
with um, Auntie Anne, and who has been a wonderful support to her, and we will be speaking to, to both of them today. Josie is, is a young mother of one, and she was fatally shot in the street on September 17th, 2019, in the Geraldton suburb of Kalu. And the 29-year-old woman was taken into Geraldton Regional Hospital, where she later died of her injuries. A police officer was charged with her murder, and we will hear about what happened with his subsequent court case. JC's death triggered massive protests in Geraldton and sparked outrage across the state. And I'd like to welcome Auntie Anne and Auntie Megan to the show. Hello to the both of you. Hello. Hey, Marissa, how are you going? That's Annie Megan. That's me. Hello, how are you, darling? And Annie Ann? Hello, Marissa, that's me. Okay, I have your voice in my memory now. Okay, so, so you're the mother You're the mother of JC, and you heard my yeah. introduction, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm her mum. I've been her mum for... I've fostered her from a five-month-old baby, but I am classed as her, you know, she's known me as her mum. Of course you're her mum. Yes, Absolutely. I'm in. Yep. Auntie, and did you want to just start off by telling us what land you're from, and, and maybe you, and perhaps you too, Auntie Megan, as well? I'm from the Midwest Gascoigne. Um, it's called Yamidi, yeah, Yamidi Country or Wajiri Country. That's where I'm from. I'm originally from Carnarvon, but my uh, family's around the Midwest Gascoigne, right down to Yorkton, Mullawar, out to Minkasara. That's where she was that's where she was born in Minkasara, my daughter. But family members drifted all through the Midwest Gascoigne. And J C was from the same land? Yep. She was born in Minkasara and where we put it later to rest in Carnarvon, that's where her great-grandmother and grandparents, uh, grandfather's side of the family is buried in Carnarvon. And Auntie Megan, you've been supporting supporting um, Auntie Anne, haven't you? Yeah, there's been... <clears throat> so there's myself and Jerry George Artis. We're both on the National Suicide Prevention Trauma Recovery Project. With a two year, within a two-year period, we've worked with about 18,000 um, of the most vulnerable and marginalised across the nation, and very much, a, yeah. So, Annie Ann, we came into contact um, with Annie Ann shortly thereafter, and even, in fact, that night, um, yeah. with how the media was portraying Miss Clark, um, we just had Jerry George Artisy had to correct the narrative because the dear soul, she was failed by a number of, by the system. By the system in terms of Department of Health with mental health, the prison system, and also the police. But there's a number of failures. But we have been supporting. There's a lot of love and respect for Annie and the family, and we've been on the journey since it first happened right until now. And yeah. we can, in fact, Annie and family. So there's a lot of love and respect there. But I'm just. My name is Megan Cracker. I work. Well, I work for the National Suicide Prevention Trauma Recovery Project, as I mentioned. But where I'm from is a place called Mount Barker, which is just about three and a half hours out of Perth. Um, Noongar Yoga, and just we're trying to elevate the deficit discourse, particularly in these trying circumstances, without the political will of the government. 
Thank you so much for, for letting me know that. The Do and Time show has had a very, very long tradition of having First Nations people introduce their land first and foremost, and we also look at lived experience as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But let's talk about what happened, and like it's really what we're doing today is really just having a, a discussion about what happened because it's really important that listeners are aware of the real story. So I'm wondering um, if the two of you, and, and maybe you could start off, um, Arnie Ann, or if you whatever you feel comfortable that you two feel comfortable with, just talk about what happened and also what happened with the murder charge as well. Well, at the, time, at the time it happened, I was staying in Mullawal, that's where I live, and my granddaughter and um, daughter-in-law, they were in Jordan, in Kalu. Now, that's where she was there with... She was there with my granddaughter and the, um, the daughter-in-law. Yeah. And she just sort of snapped and got a little bit, you know... Started, you know, when when you got that, when you either, you know, she was like getting a bit crabby or whatever you like to say, and I and had a little argument with my granddaughter, which she loved, you know, but it's just a, she just went off. I don't know what for, but anyway, they rang me and, you know, and I said, well, just ring the, you know, just ring the police to see if they can go and get do a welfare check on her. And that went from there to, then they come out with, oh, they rang back and said, oh, she, the police shot her up the road. And I said, what? And then there's all this, you know, they never, they never did a welfare check on her. They never, never even tried to do a welfare check on her. And then the next thing I found out from family members, not from the police that she got shot, this came from family members that rang me and said, oh, mummy, mummy's up the right, mum, because all the little, all the young children in Delton that knew her, they knew her as mummy Joyce. Yeah. And when she got shot, well, there was quite a few young kids around there, and then they ran back and rang up, rang up to me and said, "Mummy Joyce got shot. The police shot her." And that was that's all I heard until the police the police commissioner, not commissioner, the superintendent came out from the Orton to Mullawar about up past eleven that night just to come and pay their condolences. But I've already known from 7 o'clock that night. So it's a bit slow. Very slow. Yeah, very slow. And it's an hour's, only an hour's drive. So I was too busy worrying about keep protecting their, them lot, you know, the police in the hospital because my, do- my granddaughter and... My um, daughter-in-law now, they went up to the hospital straight after. They knew that they took her to the hospital. They went up there to try and go and see her. But they got locked out. And 
because my granddaughter grew up with her life. They're not. They were. They were only a couple of years, well, about five, six years apart, and they more or less grew up like sisters. And then when they went in there to try and see her, they were told that they couldn't go in. And my granddaughter and my daughter-in-law, they were really, you know, they were just screaming and shouting outside to try and get in. And none, nobody would have let them get, get in there. And then I think somebody rang Megan now to rang Megan about them two was out the front and then Megan rang Sandy and East wife Debbie, Debbie and they ended up at the Carnarvon, um, at the Jordan Hospital. But they still didn't get in. They just locked, up, locked the hospital down, wouldn't let them get in. So it's really about police investigating police, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, apparently, and from what I can gather here, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I can see here, um, she was fatally shot and, and the police didn't even bother to talk with her and or calm her down? Only one, one the senior sergeant was calming her down. He was, he was the one that was 20, 23 metres from her. He was, the old, he was the old police officer that was standing on the other side with talking to her. And that uh, the one that shot her, he just—he was the last. That was the last car to pull up, mm-hmm. and jumped out and just went bang. Can you tell listeners what what happened now? Um, and before I do that, I want to offer my condolences again yes. to JC's and we need to honour her on air. Mm. This is about this is this is this is a show that's being done in JC's honour. And in honour of and, yourself, yep, and, and see, the whole family. And they, from from the time she was a young, you know, was a baby, she's DCP took her from her mother, and that's how come I ended up with her. Me and my partner ended up with her, and then my partner passed away in 2000, and we had her right up, you know, and then I ended up looking after her myself then, being a single mum with my children and then she had a little boy back in a little, a little boy back in 2011 I think 11 or 12 anyway he's nine but when he was born she was in a relationship with the father and then had a domestic in the hospital which four days old when the little boy was four days old and the DCP and the police department went in there and just snatched him out of her hand and took him. And he was in care for two years before I fought to get him and I got him at two years of age, but she still had that contact, which DCP tried to tell me I couldn't give her contact with him. But I went, I just said, no, I can't let my daughter... She has to have contact with her son or even, you know, be with her son whenever she wants to. That's wonderful Mm. that you're able to have the child. Now, I know this is a really difficult subject, but it's really important for listeners. Yeah, then then, then that's what the thing was. And, you know, they deprived her of that. She wanted to, you know, and that's why she ended up in prison all the time. And then, you know, when she went back to Jordan, 
I just don't know what happened that day because I was not over in Jordan. Yeah, yeah. I was I was home in Mullawar, and then all I just heard about them, you know, the police shooting her. And then it's really awful. And then we sit for two years waiting for this trial. Two years? Yeah, mm-hmm. two years. And so that, for two years, that two you know, years that police officer never, ever sat behind bars. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the police officer. What mm. happened? What, what was, was he charged with they murder? Him. What, what's happened since then? They didn't charge him. They, they, the, the, day, the night it happened, they just took him to the hospital, did whatever, whatever they did to them there, you know. And then he went home back to his, his partner and his kids. They didn't, didn't do anything until March. That's when they got evidence that, or they, they got a footage of that footage now that's going around. It's been televised. They got that footage, and then he ended up in jail. They took him into prison, took him into the locker, into the uh, police station in Jordan, four o'clock that morning. Interviewed him. Then by five o'clock, they flew him out from there on a plane to Perth here to take him straight through to the courts and charge him with murder. Then from there. When he got charged with murder and um, remanded in custody, him and his, his lawyer went from that court to the other court and applied for bail. And in the, in the, I don't know which court it is, but anyways, they went and they got bail for him. Yeah. Mm. So he was out on bail of $200,000. So the bail, he, he put in 100000 The police union put the 100000 up. And he's been in Perth here for the two years, sitting in a motel room or whatever, not, a, or not in a cell, in a motel room. Mm. He sat in that motel room right until, right through the trial as well. Now, if, there was, if that was an Aboriginal person... They would have been in jail sitting back waiting for two years. Absolutely, you're right. Yep. And all he can say in the court when he went to court was he was fearing for his life. There was other police officers around there. He put himself in the... and tried to say that she was lunging at him and whatever. She was just standing still, just staring at him. More than anything else. You know, wasn't 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 even trying to chuck the knife or anything at him. And what's the current mm. situation now? <clears throat> he got out, got free. He got acquitted. He got acquitted. Yes. After two, three and a half weeks, we sat. And then you're going on for three weeks. We sat at the courthouse all that time. Going through, you know, through the legal processes. And then on Friday, it took three hours for the jurors to come back with a verdict not guilty of murder, not guilty of manslaughter. 
And yet it was alleged that Jay said she didn't kill anybody. She didn't kill no. anyone. It was alleged she had a knife, but they could have talked her out of having, you know, dropping the knife. There was she no was already... That's the reason why she was standing still. She wasn't intending to do anything to anybody. She was just standing there. Mm. And before, you know, the, the senior sergeant was talking to her, like, like I was saying first time, he just jumped out of the car. He couldn't even wait for the car to stand stop still. He jumped off, jumped out and ran along the side really? of the car. So there have been more than 400 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have died in police custody, haven't there, since the end of the Royal Commission. And during that time, only a handful of cases have resulted in prosecution. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's absolutely horrendous with what's going on and the, the injustices that have been suffered is not... What, what actually happened? I mean, Jerry Gorgardis had contacted me that night because he was getting phone calls left, right and centre from the Yamaji community. He'd spoken to myself. I'd spoken to Debbie Woods. She's the CEO of the Geraldton Regional Aboriginal Medical Service. Sandy Davies, who's the chairperson of the Geraldton Regional Aboriginal Medical Service. And both are absolutely wonderful with what they do, not only in the Yamaji country, but very much right across the nation and very much in, across the state. But there's a number of failings here. And just going back to what happened on that tragic day, it's Eight police officers at the at the scene. Eight police officers. There was a gentleman who was two to three metres away from Miss Clark, and he was trying to de-escalate the situation. And he was ten days earlier. He did come into contact with Miss Clark, rest in peace, and he took her to the hospital for a um, to make sure that she was okay. Now, ten days later, the same officer. He's trying to de-escalate the situation. And the car with the accused, or the person who's now been acquitted, he yeah. was one of us on scene. He was the most junior officer on scene. He did not take into account that, yes, there was already a senior officer who was known to Miss Clark and she knew him as well, um, who was already de-escalating the situation. As soon as he jumped out the car and the car had barely stopped, four steps, he was pulling out his gun. He gets to her, and this all happens within 17 seconds. He gets the poor little soul. They have a face-off within three seconds. Miss Clark, rest in peace, she did not move her feet. Did not move her feet at all. And on, no. as the CCTV footage clearly shows, um, there was no, she was not intending on raising the knife or anything like that. But he took it upon himself, the most junior person, three officers out of the car, the others were in the car, one, the most senior person who was parking the car and containing the area. The area was very much contained by that sense. And he took it upon himself, I'm going to shoot her, and that's exactly what he did. Now, the yep. mere fact that he wasn't convicted of murder, the mere fact that he wasn't convicted of manslaughter, and the mere fact that he was acquitted of these charges is absolutely disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. But we must also take into account some of the other organisations and the institutions and the government who have failed. We must, we must remember that two years prior to Miss Clark's MPs coming out into the community, she was in a prison. Now, being in a prison, where was the restorative justice? Where was the rehabilitation? Where was the support to ensure that she was coming out into a house, into the support? That's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're funded to do. And they failed to do that. 
in terms of the mental health support, well, where was that? Why did the police officers not have somebody who was trained in mental health and even the police officers being trained in mental health to de-escalate the situation? There was none of that. So the mere fact that a man, a police officer, who was the most junior on site that day, who arrived in the car that pulled up last, within 17 seconds, shoots Miss Clark dead, is just an absolutely disgusting tragedy. And it's an indictment not only on the police department, Department of Corrective Services in Western Australia, but very much in Western Australia, the government and the federal government. The Aboriginal Death in Custody, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Death in Custody Report in 1991, 339 recommendations. They haven't even been implemented. So therefore, there's no political will, no political will whatsoever. Um, Absolutely. There, there should have been more done. There wasn't more done. What we're seeing right now is that at least 485 people of our brothers and sisters, First Nations right across this nation since 1991, have died at the hands of police, have died in the prison system. Now, yep. by 2025, we're expecting that number of our brothers and sisters, all our countrymen and, and ladies and children, we're expecting that that's to grow to 600. Now, that begs the question, what was the point of having a Royal Commission if they're not going to implement the recommendation? What was the point? We know that there's a gap between the haves and the have-nots, but in terms of what happened with Miss Clark, it's a total injustice, it's a travesty, and this West Australian government should be ashamed of themselves. In terms of the court process, the court process um, in terms of suppression orders, why is there a suppression order so we cannot mention his name? It's, it's ludicrous, and there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of outrage, and we need to remember that the, with what's gone on, there's a little boy. There's a little boy now growing up without the love... Without a mother. Without his mother. Yep. It's and he, 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 he The next, the last that afternoon, he said, why did the police officer get out, Nana? He said. Oh. And then next, next, next morning, you know, we come back, and the next morning, he said, Nana, why did that police officer get out? Why didn't he go to jail? He shot my mother, so why didn't he go to jail? And and that's another and, issue of contention. And the day and the day that, that that happened, when she did get shot, that was about what six six fifteen or something. Yeah, six, yeah. And we was in Mullawa, me, him, me and me and my four grandchildren. Yeah. Three, the little boy, a little boy, and my daughter's three kids. We was out over there, and Mama was sitting down waiting to watch TV, was watching TV. And when that shot happened in Gilton, he looked at me five minutes before a family member rang me to say that she was already gone. He looked straight, me straight in the eye, and he said, Nana, my mum's dead. I'm just happy that you we were able to get the little boy. We were 100 k's away. Yeah. We was 100 k's away. And that little boy at six years of age just looked me straight in the eye and said, my mum's dead. It's awful. It's, it's, so it's she died in the hospital. She died right on the scene. Yeah. Arnie Ann and Arnie Megan, it's, it's, I'm so happy that, that you two have come onto the show. I actually got a call at 6.30 this morning um, Marion McKay sent through a message and 
they wanted she wanted me to do the interview and um, I was really happy to do it and I'm hoping that I can have you back regularly. Yeah. No, thanks thanks for that, Marissa. I mean, you know what the situation is right across the nation where we're we're being denied justice. But in yeah. terms of the police we think about many families, Mr Pat rest in peace. Yep. We think about um Shadina rest in peace where she was held to the ground 65 seconds later. Even like old back. boy, old uncle, that old uncle, Mr Ward. Mr yeah. Ward, mm-hmm. cooked yeah. in the van. In the van, he was cooked for four hours by criminally negligent officers. Yes. And Miss Drew, rest in peace. Yes. And many other families right across Western Australia. Right across Western Australia. So there hasn't been any accountability. There sure as hell hasn't been any culpability. And this is an issue that's been going on for many years. We know that there's no political will because if there was political will, they would have implemented all the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. But we see a lot of our people out in community and they're starving. They've got no food. In Western Australia, for example, we've got 17,000 people on the wait list for the Department of Housing and Home, equating to 44,000 people. Now, one of the things that should have been done, which wasn't done, after Miss Clark rest in peace had left the prison system, is she should have had her own house. Yep. And that's one of the things that she said, and that was the evidence that was given in court. I need my own house, I need my own house, otherwise I'm going to kill myself. And I tell you, she was a very she was a very clean girl and she would have looked after her house. That's right. Yep. So unless this support, unless this government, whether it's state or whether it's federal, if they do not implement the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, if they do not provide housing for all our people, black, white and brown, we yeah. have more people returning back into prison. Unless there is that intense psychosocial support, the assertive outreach, which is 24-7, which isn't part of the mental health plan in Western Australia, we're going to leave brothers and sisters out there to fend for themselves. Is that the kind of world that we want to live in, particularly when it's meant to be about the love and caring for each other? Because after all, we are all brothers and sisters of the human family, but yep. the discrimination, the racism that we're being subjected to, the most marginalised in this country, is alive, it's real, and we are feeling the impact every single day. We're yep. fighting for, for justice. And we won't stop. There is, a, there is a rally nationwide that is happening on Thursday. And locations, Perth, Geraldton, Sydney, Canberra. Carnarvon. Carnarvon. Yes. So this is what's happening at this point. Flies will be going out within the next um, within the next couple of hours. And we're just really angry. We're angry with a lot of things, particularly with this verdict that's been handed down. It was a clear case of murder. He had intent to kill. He'd taken 17 seconds to go to where she was, the poor little thing. And, you know, there, there was all evidence to suggest other things. But the mere fact is, how can you jump out of a car which had barely stopped, ran to a young girl and and basically shoot at close range? With the police training, there's a certain area that they should go into or an area that they shouldn't. And he did um, go into that shouldn't area. That, that was a danger zone. The danger and, zone. He shouldn't have went into it. Yeah, particularly when he had intention of using the gun if the situation couldn't be de-escalated. He said that he feared for his life. Well, why put yourself in in harm's way? There was an already an officer trying to de-escalate the situation who already had the relationship with Miss Clark. And as mentioned earlier, he'd taken this officer, Miss Clark, to the hospital 10 days prior. So you worked that out. Yeah. 
And when was the actual court case? The last the one? Court, it started on the 4th of October and it concluded on Friday. And there's still a suppression order in place? Yes, there's still a suppression order. Nobody's allowed to say his name. Oh, Never, not even a photo. Not even a, not, not even allowed to see a photo of him. What a travesty of justice! Yep, well, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an atrocity. I've been asking him and asking him and asking him. I said, "No, I want to know his name. I want to see a photo of him. Can you can you show me?" Oh no, we can't do that. It's been suppressed. Uh huh. That's why I can't. So how can I get it? How can I get it? That's right. And that's what Annie Ann mentioned earlier, Part Here is Miss Clark. She was shot within several hours of him doing what he did because he did shoot her. There's no question about that. Hours later, he was able to go back to his, from the police station back to his family. Two, hours, two, day, two weeks later, he was able to go back to work. Six months later, that's when the homicide squad from Perth went to Geraldton, did what they did in terms of charge, um, arrested him, brought him down to Perth, and when brought down to Perth, he was charged with murder. He went to the magistrate's court that morning and straight straight across to the district court, and that's where he got bail. He has never spent the night in prison. So if that was an Aboriginal person or someone that who person was still in jail, that person would have been charged that night. They would have stayed in prison until such time that the trial came came up. That's our reality. Some people in prison over here in Western Australia, they're sitting in prison for one year, two years, just waiting for their court case to be heard. What's the difference? There's no difference. You do the wrong act, you do the we equality. You do the crime, you do the time. But he's, he, he did a crime and he's not doing the time. Just like Chris Hurley, who was living it up on the Gold Coast after he killed he killed um, Dabudgie. Yep. Arnie Ann and um, Arnie Megan, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It was lovely to have you both. Yep, thank you. And we'll be interviewing pretty soon um, about the refugees that are, that are getting coronavirus left, right and centre in Victoria. Thank you so much to both of you and I'm hoping to have you back yep. very soon. Lovely. Thank you very much for that. Thanks, Arnie Ann, and, and my condolences yep. again. Thank yep, you. thank you. Bye. Bye, Annie Megan. Bye. Love and respect. We'll yep. talk soon. Nice to talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Take care. You're on 3CR. That was a segment from Doin' Time with Marissa Spizarro, who is speaking with Auntie Anne Jones and Auntie Megan Krakur over the death of JC, who is a 29-year-old Yamachi woman uh, shot by police. And we extend our condolences to the family um, of JC and also to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people affected uh, by this litany of criminal negligence on part of the police. We're now joined by Kristen Lee, who is the Communications Director for the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and is here to talk to us today about the ongoing campaigns against the mistreatment and exploitation of racehorses in the industry. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Kristen. Hi, how are you going? Well, thank you. Um, thank you for joining us. Could you please start by introducing yourself and telling us a bit more about the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses? 
Yes, I'm the Communications Director for CPR, the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses. We formed in 2008 uh, to address the systemic and shocking issues that are inherent to horse racing. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues actually um, was inspired to put the group together after um, learning about the issue that your listeners might be aware of called wastage, which is uh, what they refer to when they say a horse is no longer wanted um, and they get sent to slaughter either at a mackery or a slaughterhouse for pet food or for human consumption, uh, which is uh, um, quite popular horse meat is overseas. Um, so we discovered that horses were being sent to a local mackery not far from the Flemington track. And uh, when my colleagues went down there, they, they were quite disgusted to see that there were perfectly healthy horses in the pens that had come pretty much straight from the track that were just uh, waiting to be killed. Uh, so um, an investigation was launched and uh, we've still got that footage up on our website from back then. And um, we have been fighting ever since and we've come a really long way raising awareness about the issues inherent to the industry. Mm, paints paints quite a grim picture of the, the racing industry, that issue of wastage that you touched on there. What are some of the other main concerns regarding horses competing in racing season? Uh, for pretty much from, from birth to death, their life is one of domination and exploitation. Uh, they are uh, trained extremely young. They're put through uh, very uh, hard training regimes. Obviously, their spirits are broken to be compliant. Um, mm. Through the use of instruments, they use bits, tongue ties, spurs, whips. These are uh, legal and common instruments used in the industry. Uh, They are um, put on the track as young as uh, one-year-old, not to officially race, but to be training even younger. Uh, They are uh, kept in stalls which are like very small, they can barely turn around and that's their kind of, their daily living. It's standard practice for racehorses to be kept in a stall or what they call a box for up to 23 hours a day and they're let out to train and then they're put back in the box so they don't get to socialise, they don't get to graze freely uh, with uh, other horses They are, and they're not breathing fresh air. So all of these things lead to internal issues. Uh, 90% approximately of horses used in racing have stomach ulcers, which are very painful for them because they're fed a high-protein diet rather than being able to graze throughout the day, which is what they need for a healthy uh, mental and physical uh, healthy life. Uh, they're also... Uh, once they're put onto the track, they're obviously being pushed beyond their limits way too often. So that's why we see deaths on the racetrack so often uh, as a big part of it is uh, the horses' bodies, um, their bones. They, they suffer something called bone fatigue. So the University of Melbourne has done lots of research into this and has recommended that the horses be rested much more often because they're pushed so hard so often that the bones do fatigue and that's why you see these what they call catastrophic injuries on the racetrack. Uh, Luckily, you know, the world has seen more so on Melbourne Cup Day, but we see that. The reality is we see injuries such as that every 2.5 days on Australian racetracks alongside uh, bleeding from the lungs, which is also a common occurrence in racehorses. It's uh, the vast majority they suspect about 90 to 95% of studies have shown of racehorses suffer some degree of bleeding in the lungs when they're raced uh, and 
often that leads to their death. So we're seeing lots of uh, yeah heart attacks, injuries and, and bleeding to death on the track. Uh, once every uh, two and a half days, our latest Death Watch report showed. Um, so the, the suffering goes right through. And then at the end of that, if they're not profitable, some of them don't even make it to the racetrack. At the end of that, when um, they're either used up and they're not fast enough or they never were fast enough, uh, they get sent to the Nacreal Slaughterhouse. Now, the industry will use pin-up horses to show how loved they are and living out their lives. A horse can live up to the age of 30 in a good life, um, whereas the average um, time a horse is used in racing is three years. So once you're once they're no longer wanted, they might only be, you know, two years old, three years old, four years old. It's rare to see horses racing still at 10 years old, very rare. And they've got another, you know, potentially 20 good years in them. Um, and it costs a lot of money to look after a horse. And when they've only been purchased to make money, the logical thing is to get rid of them. Um, they might make a token attempt to rehome them, which is what Racing Victoria is trying to push for now and Racing New South Wales simply because we've been exposing wastage. And, the, you know, the world has been shocked to see how horrific it is. We're seeing about 10,000 thoroughbred horses being sent to slaughter each year. Um, the industry breeds about 13,000 each year, so that's the vast majority are just being sent off to be killed. Very, very rarely are they do they get to live out their lives, and often when they do, they might just waste away in a paddock, which is as bad an outcome, obviously, for them. Yeah, that's an awful <clears throat> life for, for racehorses, and um, I, I didn't know that um, horses could live for that long and, and that they're really only used for a couple of years in the mm. racing industry. Um, and I think so many people obviously know about, uh, you know, that horses can die on the track. But what you described is, yeah, like you said, a, a, a lifelong suffering um, mm. from the moment that they're, um, yeah, that they're still yeah. young and, and training. And, and it's awful to hear that, you know, the um, what they are put through um, uh during training and, and yet some of them might not actually make it on, on the race course. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, which is just <laughs> so hard to um, imagine. South Australia um, recently banned jumps racing. I saw this on your website. Could you please talk us through why jumps racing is so dangerous um, and the campaign to get Victoria to ban this practice as well? Sure. So jumps racing until only last month only existed in South Australia and Victoria. Other states have either banned it or just don't have a, an industry for it um, over the, the last uh, few decades. So uh, New South Wales, for example, banned it back in the 80s, I believe, uh, for reasons of animal cruelty. So horses are forced to jump over obstacles at high speeds with a jockey on their back with a whip. So they're being forced over these jumps. The industry will make out horses love to jump. I mean, horses might like to, to frolic around in a paddock. It's very different to being forced over a, a jump or a steeple um, at high speeds when you're not choosing to. Mm -hmm. So obviously this, when they're exhausted, some of these tracks, these races are like three and a half kilometres long, five kilometres long. The Warner Bull steeplechase is, is about five and a half k's. I think that's one of our longest, if not the longest. And um, they can have like 33 jumps. So you imagine by the time the horses are tiring, often towards the end is where the, the falls will occur because they're just so exhausted. They sometimes literally fall over the jump, um, break their legs very easily or they can break their necks. They la often land head first and snap their necks. 
and there's a crowd of people watching and cheering a horse over the finish line and there's another horse at the back there lying there, mm. um, you know, who has been killed for gambling profits and entertainment. And, um, you know, this is statistically 19 times more dangerous than flat racing. Mm. So you might not get as many deaths from jump racing a year, but that's simply because we don't hold them as often as flat racing. But when we do, they're more likely to kill a horse. So, you know, the industry's got this, facade of um, being this glamorous it's you know beautiful people go along and it's all very you know the horses are so well loved and it's all very elitist and you know behind the scenes it's a gruesome and bloody and dirty and disgusting vile industry and it's so great that people are starting to wake up to that so South Australia um, we've been running a campaign there for quite a long time particularly against the uh, Easter races at Oakbank, which used to be a huge event, it would track about a hundred attracts about a hundred thousand people over the Easter weekend, um, and they would camp out and picnic there. And uh, that is now um, we saw last year it had dwindled to about five thousand attendees. Uh, so it's really dropped in popularity since we've been campaigning against it and exposing how dangerous and brutal jumps racing is. Uh, so. This year, we, just last month, we heard the amazing news that it hasn't been banned, unfortunately, legally, uh, but it has been um, cancelled by the South, Racing South Australia because there's just no uh, industry or desire for it anymore. And, and we put that down to the hard work of activists who have exposed that, including you know so many of our volunteers who have protested out the front each year and have shared this information and educated the public and they just haven't wanted to go along anymore. So, um, yeah, it's slowly, slowly and but surely um, died its own slow death and um, there's a lot of pressure now to bring that back to South Australia so we need to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but now Victoria remains the final state in Australia to support jumps racing. So um, there's the jump season runs for about five to six months of the year so that'll kick in again uh, in... Uh, autumn next year so we've got to really campaign hard up until then to make sure that season does a go ahead um racing victoria has been known to to make a decision uh back in i think 2009 it was they actually committed to banning jumps racing and then they backflipped so um it's been a very contentious issue for a very long time and it's about time they just you know lived up to their their claims of caring about horses and actually stopped this this brutal so-called sport. Mm, I, I think it's pretty telling the fact that Victoria is still the only state uh, that still does jump racing, um, and it's it, de- it definitely sounds horrific. Um, mm. But we we do only have uh, a couple minutes left, uh, Kristen. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about um, the the racehorse retirement plan that the coalition has put forward, and also how we can get involved and support the work that you guys do. Yeah, so uh, uh, we uh, launched a retirement plan. We wrote an entire entire retirement plan for the industry, hoping they would adopt it uh, in 2014, which is basically asking for simply 1% of betting turnover. 1%, that's all that we um, put to get, uh, propose that they do. That would result in $210 million a year if they were willing to just give 1% of betting turnover to looking after those horses uh, after racing and ensuring they get a good life. Um, 
as we said, horses are you know expensive to look after, but that would go a long way. And we're not seeing anything near that after our expose. Um, the final race on the 7.30 report in uh, 2019, the industry went into meltdown and they finally started taking action. But they've committed, Racing Victoria has committed just $25 million over three years. It's simply not enough. Uh, and uh, we're not seeing results from that uh, really at all yet. So they need big bucks and they need to commit. It's a small amount for them, but it's a huge amount for the horses uh, and start actually, um, you know, practising what they preach. And uh, we're asking people to say not to the cup. Um, tomorrow is obviously Melbourne Cup Day. We want people to boycott horse racing, not just on Cup Day, but throughout the year, but particularly not to the cup because it sends a powerful statement that we need a cultural shift in this country. It's been ingrained in our society to have a frivolous bet in the sweep, in the office, uh, at home, and in parties, go to the races, all that thing. We need to acknowledge what we're supporting and say not to the cup and make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals rather than a, a party at their expense. Definitely, and that's a really strong message to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kristen. We'll um, pop the links to your website, and also I know there are a couple of protest events happening um, tomorrow. Uh, we'll put the, pop them in the show notes uh, later this morning. But again, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR, and thank you for your ongoing work. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Kristen Lee from uh, the Coalition for the Protection of Horses speaking to us today about um, the ongoing mistreatment in the racing industry. And that's all we have time for. Hope you enjoy the rest of your morning. Up next is Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.